Welcome to Community Conversations, the podcast series from Crime Stoppers. I'm Richard Myron. In this series, we're taking a close look at the issue of knife crime, which has become a headline concern throughout the country. We've come to Surrey to understand knife crime from the perspective of first responders. This county hasn't seen the level of incidents witnessed in other parts of the country, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. And with increases across the UK, Surrey, like elsewhere, is bracing itself for what might happen. I've been out to see what the current situation is for those first responders. So it's a sunny day here in Surrey, and we've come here to St Peter's Hospital, which is near the town of Chertsey in Surrey, and just in front of me is the entrance to the Accident and Emergency Department. We're going to go in there and we're going to meet one of the senior doctors. Dr Sri? Yes, Richard, welcome. Thank you very much indeed. So, Dr Sriram Thilanayagam, you are a consultant. Shall we wander on in so we can have a chat? Yeah, please come on in. Thank you. There are various attending rooms around us and, and the bays, resuscitation room just to our right. So when someone comes in seemingly with a knife injury, what's the first response of medical personnel such as yourselves? How does it differentiate from other people who might come in with, with other kinds of in, injuries? What we see on the surface of the body, which is, could just be a two centimetre wound, we don't know the depth of it. So suppose someone has broken an arm or a leg, it's quite clear. The worst case scenario could be just a broken limb. Whereas for a knife injury, we don't know the depth of the injury. Now, what is the challenge with that? The challenge with that is that if it, the knife has injured a vessel, which could be an artery or a vein, in certain areas it could punch the lung, punch the heart. Those are really critical injuries. The main thing is they lose their blood volume. So we need to quickly close the tap, provided we know where the tap is, okay, and how deep it is. So recognition of where the injury is, how deep is the wound, what are the likely structures which can be affected. The most first thing we always say is if you see a wound, if it's bleeding actively, knife injury, if there's bleeding, stop the bleed. That is the simple message. How time critical is the treatment of knife injuries? That's a good question. Time is ticking when you have a penetrating knife injury. It's all about preparation. We don't get a lot of these patients, but when they do come, they take a hell lot of resources uh, to manage. So you would need the right personnel. You need lots of equipment, availability of blood, availability of a transfer system. If they need to transfer them to another hospital, you need to have everything lined up and ready. Dr. Shriram Thilanayagam, thank you very much mm-hmm. indeed. No, welcome, my pleasure. So from St. Peter's Hospital, we're now going to drive to another location to hear a completely different perspective. So we've now arrived at a location. I can't say exactly where it is. It's in Surrey. Inside the brick building in front of me is the Crime Stoppers Contact Centre. It's where calls are received from people anonymously who want to report about various crimes. Nothing's going on in their area. And we'll begin to get a picture of, of how knife crime is figuring in that kind of reporting that Crime Stoppers is getting. Hello, Crime Stoppers. We've come to meet Ian. Okay, come through. Thank you. 
Ian. Hi. Pleasure Hi. to meet you. We're in a, a kind of large room and there must be a bank of at least 50 phones here and people answering phones and screens in front of them. Now, of course, I do understand, Ian, that this is 100% anonymous, yep. so there's not too much description we can obviously give. Isn't that That's true? absolutely correct, yeah. We keep everyone completely anonymous who phones us, so we don't uh, mention anything that happens in the calls to anyone, not even each other. All the notes that are taken are destroyed and all the numbers are scrambled before the calls enter our call centre. So, first of all, tell me about yourself. What do you do here? My name's Ian. I'm a shift leader here at the Crime Stoppers Contact Centre. When you get the information and it's delivered to you, as you say, it's, it's, it's given anonymously, what do you do with that information? Basically, what will happen is someone will phone up and say they know a drug dealer or they know someone carrying a blade. That information is taken by one of our call agents. They will write a report keeping everything about the informant out of it. They won't even mention whether the person phoning is man or female. Once that report's written, it gets sent through to me. I will then check it, check the facts, check the areas going to the right police force, make sure nothing identifies the informant again, a second level of anonymity, and then send it to the correct police force. If there's a time-critical element, for example, someone's about to commit a stabbing, I will then call the police and make sure they have the information straight away. So you really are very much on at least the front line of hearing about the incidents of knife crime. Absolutely, yeah, we are. We are... Not necessarily first responders, but we are usually the first people to hear about someone who's starting to carry a blade. From the calls that you're getting, what are you hearing about the increase in incidents of knife crime? We take approximately 600 pieces of information a day regarding crime. And of that 600 pieces of information, well over half, I would suggest, have some sort of bladed weapon involved. Knife crime has actually become rather more prevalent than it was when I first started here. I think we've uh, had an increase of about 60 to 70% in the last year. Often people won't necessarily phone to report a specific person carrying a knife, but almost every report involving drugs or that sort of thing involves a blade of some description. So it's not just solely the crime of holding a weapon or, or committing an offence with a weapon, but it's, it's wrapped up, as it were, in other crime. That's right, yeah. It seems to me that almost everyone committing crime these days feels they have to carry a blade. And unfortunately, that often leads to violence, obviously causing the deaths and things that we've seen. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. A vivid picture there from the front lines. This evening, we've gathered a number of key people to share their perspectives as first responders. And we've also gathered an audience of people from across the county who have an interest in this issue of knife crime. Joining me on the panel are Teresa Raspberry, who's a police constable, and she's based in the southwest part of the county. She's had direct experience through her work of knife crime, and she'll go on and explain what happened, but attending to a child who'd been stabbed for her work in saving the victim's life, she's been awarded a commendation. Also joining us this evening is Annie. Now, Annie is a pseudonym because Annie worked on the ambulances and also now works for Crime Stoppers in their contact centre where she receives calls from people anonymously giving information about crime. Also, we have with us Emily Drew, and Emily is an outreach worker for Fearless, Crime Stoppers Youth Prevention Arm. Emily's work in Surrey is also about being a point of first response in educating and informing young people about the threat of knives. Now, first of all, if I can turn to you, Teresa, I mentioned the incident for which you've been commended. 
Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so it was a cold, wet morning, or evening, sorry, in January of this year. We were, myself and two other colleagues, were called to a stabbing. And usually you're very calm and relaxed and you sort of know what it's going to be. At this point, when we arrived, the members of the public were quite sort of worried and panicked and we could hear screaming from this bridge. And when we've got to the bridge, I've just seen a lot of blood. And then as we've ran there, we've seen the victim at this time with blood sort of pouring out of his legs and all over his body, his I think he had grey tracksuit bottoms at the time were soaked through with blood. Now, just to clarify, the victim, when you talk about the victim, you're talking about a teenage child. Yes, I believe he was 15 at the time. And the perpetrator, as you later discovered, was how old? 14 years old. That's very shocking. I'm sure the incident itself was very shocking. And then to discover that the, the perpetrator is so young as well. Yes, yeah, it's obviously... You know, you expect it to sort of be older people, but unfortunately not in this case. It's two children and um, the victim sort of sustained quite bad injuries from that stabbing. And of course, it could have been worse. Yeah, it could have been worse. I think initially when you arrive at a scene like that and you're sort of overwhelmed by the amount of blood. So your first thing that you think about is we really need to save this person's life and sort of plug the wounds and try and you know maintain his consciousness until we can get that professional help from paramedics and things so okay Teresa thank you for that Annie you worked on the ambulances for seven years six six years didn't quite manage seven almost seven years can you give me an idea of the increase in the incidents involving knives that you encountered the when you had to come and treat people? I'd been at the ambulance service quite some time before we got called out to my first stabbing. That doesn't mean there wasn't any. I think I'd been there over a year. Towards the end of my career, it felt like myself or my colleagues were called out almost every shift to some form of stabbing or slashing with a knife. And when you heard Teresa's experience, did that tally the age there? Absolutely. My first attendance of a stabbing, he was 14 years old. And your first port of call is these lovely police. Thank you for being there. When Because we really need to know we're safe. We'd have to wear stab vests. You have to wear a stab vest? Yes, because if I go down, I can't help anybody. So stab vests were expected to be worn. So you left the ambulance service and, and you've gone on to work at Crime Stoppers mm-hmm. and, and we did visit Crime Stoppers as we heard in that piece earlier and we heard about the increase in the number of people ringing up to report about knife crime or presence of knives. Is that also what you hear in your work these Absolutely. days? Absolutely. I'm on the four on four off shifts so we have 12 hour shifts or 10 hour shifts and I must take personally myself, no matter who else is in the room, I must take at least six calls reporting people who've got knives. In every shift. That's incredible. Emily, you work with Phyllis. You work with trying to educate to prevent, in a way, very important part of of first response. Now, Surrey, one tends to think of Surrey as being leafy. And, you know, when one hears about knife crime, you tend to think about it being in, in the heart of our cities in the country. How are you hearing about it from the young people that you're dealing with in this area? Well, I think that Surrey, while it is generally safer than most other counties, it does still have problems and issues. And I think that what we're facing at the moment with Surrey is we are seeing an increase in violent incidents. I believe that was like a two times increase in under 18s being involved in knife incidents. 
But I think at the same time, you know, it's not on the same accelerating level as some other places. But I think what we are facing is a time for people that are involved in preventing knife crime, in awareness of of knife crime, in stopping kind of the growth that we've seen in other areas. I think in Surrey, we're on that kind of precipice at the moment where we have a chance to say, actually, no, it's not going to get to that stage. We're going to put things in place and we're going to learn from other places to make sure that, you know, the young people in our area don't get, you know, sucked into these violent circles of, of crime. And we heard there both from Annie and from Teresa about the age, 15 years old, of victims, 14 years old of, of perpetrators and so on. That sounds very, very young. It, are you finding that children are aware of knives generally at those ages or even younger? I definitely think so. They can't help but avoid it in terms of the press and the general, you know, you talk about London, young people in London, they'll probably associate that with knives. You talk about the general culture, like pop culture as it is in the moment. You know, you listen to, you know, any kind of grime song that's in the charts, they'll probably mention some sort of carrying a knife, they'll probably mention some sort of evading the police. And, you know, I'm not going to start a discussion about whether or not that's right, freedom of speech, etc. But it is part of a normalising culture that young people are experiencing these days, along with the, the culture of marijuana and drug use and things like that. I want to move to a question from our audience. Hello, I'm David Munro. I'm the Police and Crime Commissioner uh, for Surrey, and thank you very much for inviting me. My question really is this. Thinking more long-term about this undoubted problem, how do you see agencies such as yourselves and others working together on the prevention front to stop knife crime in its tracks? Teresa? I mean, you're in a way the first visible presence that maybe most members of the public see, the police. What would, do you think, help you in doing your job, both in, in dealing with the consequence of knife crime and trying to prevent it? I think a better understanding of sort of the consequences of knife crime. I believe youths these days go out with knives to protect themselves. That's not everyone, but, you know, the odd few do go out with knives to protect themselves. This is your understanding sort of anecdotally in your experience through work? Yes, yeah. I think more of an understanding of knife crime and the effects will sort of help to reduce that. Emily, from your perspective, you work with the other agencies, with the police, the ambulance, social services and and elsewhere. How can they from your experience, be better tied together? I think it's a difficult one because every independent agency or organisation has their own approach to it and their own way in which they want to address that. And I think as you know, some parts of Surrey are making really good moves towards it, is developing a really strong multi-agency work towards that. So, you know, getting all the actors in a room together, discussing the problems, discussing where they can provide support or provide services and creating a borough or a county-wide plan that sets out what each partner is going to do in that area. Because the, the danger is that because everyone's so busy with what they're doing and their own aspect on it is that you're going to get people duplicating it and you're going to get gaps where you know you think someone else covers it but you don't. And by getting everyone in the same room together and everything on the same page you're making sure that nobody slips through that gap. Thank you. We have a question from the audience. The hand's just gone up. Yeah, it's uh, PC Jeb, the Elmbridge Youth Intervention Officer. In response to David's question, over the last few weeks, we've been doing a lot of work with the local schools. We had an agreement with all four main senior schools in the area, and we've done three operations now. The main reason that we've done it is in relation to criminal exploitation. You mean that basically 
older people or more experienced people who coming in and exploiting younger yes. children in essence. Yeah, we'll get older people, usually drug dealers, exploiting young people to sell drugs for them. So what we've done is um, we've had a drugs dog at the front and some officers with wands behind them, supported by the school who would search the young people's bags to see that they haven't got any knives. We've also done um, wanding, if you like, of the young people to see if they've got anything metallic on them. We've engaged, we've chatted to them, we've explained to them why we're there. If the drugs dog picks up anything on the young people, I will go with the young people and a member of staff to speak to them about why they think they may have cannabis on their person or they've been in contact with it. And we'll discuss why they've got it and they'll give it an explanation. It's it's proved really successful. We went to one today in one of the schools and it was clear straight away that parents were aware of it happening. And within an hour of us starting it, there was probably about 130 comments on, I think it was Facebook or Twitter, most of which were positive. So visibility there of the police, both in schools and, and no doubt, I'm sure, on the streets. Annie, you were just going to say something? I think what part of what we're saying here is that communication is really important, not only for our services to communicate together, but to give these kids some kind of help. It's all very well and good saying knife crime has increased and drug crime has increased, but where do these people go? Where can we send these kids to when actually they are scared stiff because they've found out that their friend has a knife and is dealing these drugs? And I think that's a good time to say that actually when I started working from, for Crime Stoppers, having come from the ambulance service, I was absolutely sure that I would find out that we weren't really anonymous. I tried really hard. But actually, 100% we are. So it is a good service and it is totally anonymous thank you do we have another question hi my name's alex and i work in the communications department at surrey police with a lot of our campaign work we're trying to obviously steer our young people away from a culture of violence and to break the cycle with them we've run campaigns like the knife amnesty that's resulted in over 150 knives being taken off our streets this year alone um, but I'd just be really keen to hear from you guys on what else you think we could be doing um, in terms of campaign work and the prevention messaging that we've got. Okay, Emily? I think one of the key things is visibility. So making sure that you've got all the schools on board and that the same messages are being displayed on their, you know, their community boards, the same messages are getting out to the parents, just being very kind of consistent with that. And I think also it's an interesting one because of the dynamic that young people have with the police and even in Surrey. So my initial experience working with young people was in Croydon. And now their, their impression of the police was perhaps not the most positive one, if we, if we put it like that. And I thought, OK, coming down to Surrey, you know, they're going to have a problem like that. You know, the police are fine. Um, and I spoke to, you know, a number of young people and... I was really surprised that there was still that aspect that, oh, no, we don't talk to the police, we're not snitches, this huge anti-snitching culture that is a thing and it is real. And that, I think, is one of the things we need to tackle primarily in order to get young people to engage with the police in, in any meaningful way. You know, for example, I went to a pupil referral unit and I was talking to some of the boys 
And we were talking about their relationship with the police. And I was kind of saying, well, have you actually had a bad interaction with the police? And they're like, oh, no, not really. Um, and, OK, so, you know, why don't you like the police? And, you know, all sorts of things come out of their mouth. Oh, they arrested my brother's neighbour's dog and all of that sort of thing. But they still had this very harsh mentality that, no, you just don't go to the police. And you, it was difficult to unpick it until one of the lads actually sat up and he said hang on a minute, guys, we sit here talking all big about, you know, hating the police and never going to the police. But he said, if you went home, opened your door and your mother was lying on the floor in a pool of blood, who are the first people you're going to call? He was like, at the end of the day, we still want them to go and do this work for us and, and to have some sort of justice, but we don't want them involved in what we're doing. And I thought coming from a young person, that was really powerful that he, he also stood up to his friends in that sense and, and said that. And I think having conversations about, you know, would you report a crime or having conversations about police and the attitudes towards the police helps break down those preconceptions and those barriers that make kids just go, no, not talking to the police. No, I'm not a snitch. Teresa and Annie, you've both been there and you've seen the effects of knife crime. What's the effect upon you when you go home at night and, you know, you take off your uniforms, you're no longer there doing your job. I, I would imagine that some of the things that you've both experienced... They were what I used to call my red shifts. And there's a lot of blood, isn't there, Teresa? Yeah. Depending how many times they've been stabbed or slashed and where the stabbing was. But they were my red shifts. And so you'd often go to bed at night and literally all you can see is red. And somebody somewhere had thought that it was OK to walk out of their door with a knife. And that's not okay. That was somebody's son or somebody's daughter or somebody's grandson or dad or uncle and their life potentially had been taken away from them. Very difficult to get over that. Very difficult not to worry about your own children that are out in the streets enjoying nightclubs and, and very different from any other job that we would have on the ambulance service because accidents happen People have cardiac arrests, they have strokes. But for the stabbings, somebody had gone and intentionally tried to take their life. Yeah, I think the effects that you have from attending these incidents is, you know, you, you always think, what could I have improved? What could I have done better? In hindsight, you know, you've done the best job that you could at the time. But there's always things, I think, in the back of your head where you think, could I have done this? I think at the moment, there's quite a big push for mental health, which... It's very good within the police role. We attend a variety of different things, from stabbings to, you know, other incidents. It's obviously nice to have that sort of support, again, from partner agencies for our own mental health. Can I ask you, do you get afraid when you're going out for an evening? Not necessarily fear. I think it sort of turns into more of an adrenaline, you know, if there's sort of a big job as such running. I think it's more of an adrenaline push. I think after, you know, you get that whole fear and you know you're shaking sort of thing after but yeah mainly you know you sort of deal with what you've got at the time so you never know what you're going to face really when you get a phone call it can be played up quite a lot or it can be played down quite a lot you, you don't know what you're expecting when you get to a job thank you now we can move to the next question Crawford Chalmers Surrey Crime Stoppers Committee volunteer long long time ago I served in London in the police and I appreciate this is different times, different places. I'm interested in stop and search and your thoughts on stop and search, not random stop and search, I stress. Intelligence-led stop and search, is it effective? Could it be effective in reducing knife crime? 
and listening to you in particular, you're talking predominantly stop and searching some very young people, which was different from my time many, many years ago. And that's not easy. And it still remains controversial in London. But in Surrey, do you have a sense of whether it can be effective? So stop and search should be done, but, but also the danger of maybe that you alienate people by stopping and searching them. So, Teresa, what do you think as a, as a serving police officer? Yeah, I think the stop and search has always been sort of a controversial subject. I think provided you've got the grounds there, you know, we're not just stopping people randomly. I believe stop and searches do do work. After a stop and search, I think I've been on night shift last night. My colleague stopped a vehicle and did a Section 23 Misuse of Drugs Act search on somebody. After having the correct grounds, they've smelt cannabis in this case. They found cannabis on them. You know, so I think it does work if you're using it correctly to find, well, in this case, knives or drugs. I think it can be quite effective. And there's quite a lot of results from from stop and searching people. We heard a comment earlier also about obviously going into schools and doing a generalised sort of search. But isn't there a danger, Emily, that if you do that, that you're alienating the very people that you want to connect with and making them see law enforcement as exactly as you characterised uh, some of those young people see it as kind of the enemy or the other? It is difficult because I also agree that I think stop and search does help find really good intelligence and take really bad stuff off the streets. But, you know, a lot of young people don't really understand the concept of it. I think a lot of it's also about education. So a lot of young people just think, oh, they must have stopped me because they think I look dodgy. So that's already them saying, oh, well, the police have something against me. And then I think a lot of them assume or, you know, anecdotally have had bad experiences being stopped and searched so I think young people I think feel like they're being criminalized for their age and what they look like and I think maybe if there was more education with young people around like how to expect interactions with the police to go what to expect if you are stopped and searched I think that might help but I think another thing to do with stop and search which is really interesting is there is still that perception that the police do stop and search stereotypes of people and obviously you know you'll have identities of people to go on to go and stop and search and stuff like that but one of the things that the county lines gangs for example are operating on is deliberately targeting people that don't fit the standard stereotypes that the police would stop and search so for example in Surrey you've got a young white girl you put her on a train with a duffel bag is she likely to get stopped as opposed to, you know, a teenage boy with his hoodie up. My question is, how do you accommodate for those kind of tactics with stop and search? Annie, I want to ask you, because you're also, on top of everything else, you're a mother. Of, of, how would you feel if you're, well, they're now grown-up kids, but if a few years ago they'd been stopped uh, by the police? Do you know what? I'm sat here thinking, I'm an old bird, okay? <laughs> I'm sat here thinking, when I was a teenager and I had a bright red mohawk... I was stopped a lot because I had a bright red mohawk, especially when I was driving my dad's brand new Renault, okay? It was okay to stop me. I had nothing to hide. And that made me feel safe because if they were looking out for me, then they were looking out for others. So how have we gone from that, and I am only 53, to now saying... Actually, we have to be careful to stop and search. We have to make sure that we don't offend the youth. I'm really struggling with that concept. 
If you have a knife in your pocket and you're walking around Surrey or anywhere else, I would like somebody to find out that there's a knife in your pocket and that you're dangerous on the street. If my kids got stopped and searched, great. My granddaughter's only eight months old at the moment and she's my first one. It terrifies me of what it will be like in 15 years' time when she's walking these streets. Why are we not doing a stop and search? Why is it not okay to think, I think they might be dealing drugs, I think they might have a knife? Question here from David Munro. I'm, as it happens, the national lead amongst my colleagues on stop and search. And so I've talked to a lot of people and there are very strong views on both sides and we've heard some of those. I think we've got it about right in the police force. It was out of control a few years back. Far too many, millions of stops and search done. The absolute number has reduced dramatically. In fact, some people think it's reduced too far. And every single officer who does stop and search now is held to account for that. There are mechanisms that are set up that every single stop is scrutinised after the event. And the message we're having to give to our officers nationally is don't be afraid to use stop and search if you think you've got reasonable grounds and you do it politely and properly we will back you up and so as i say i think stop and search is in the right place but the legacy of the past is a very sad one there are communities out there mainly black the statistics are quite clear who are alienated by having been stopped and searched far too many times i spoke to a a black police officer, senior police officer in the Met. He spent his day on shift searching people because that was his job. When he left, when he got into civilian clothes to go to the tube on his way home, he was fed up of getting stopped himself by people who didn't realise he was a police officer. And it's that kind of experience which I'm afraid will take a very long time to get rid of. But I do think, to be optimistic, we are on the path there that stop and search is now an essential weapon in the police armoury. It's not overused and it's actually effective in fighting crime. Thank you. We're unfortunately running out of time on this podcast I think we have all learned a great deal about the invaluable role of the first responders. I want to thank everybody who's been involved in helping to make this podcast possible. Please do subscribe, listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Richard Myron and the producer is Anouk Mier and we're both from Earshot Strategies. Stoppers is an independent charity that gives people the power to speak up to stop crime 100% anonymously. If you have information on a crime, you can contact Crime Stoppers by phone and online 24-7, 365 days a year. Just call 0800 555 111 or visit crimestoppers-uk.org. <laughs>